How you guys doing? You guys are too kind. You could be seated. I normally don't wear a beanie when I preach, but it was cold in San Francisco, wee hours of the morning. I got back from London, so I'm saying we a lot too. Wee hours of the morning, it was cold. So I was, what happened was, I was supposed to make this connection from Dallas to Houston. They delayed that flight, uh, and uh, that threw me off significantly because I'm going to get a chance to hang out with Eli and Mary and be at their house, and so I was looking forward to getting there early. Then they, uh, it was already delayed like two hours. Then they drove us out on the tarmac, and they let us sit there because they say air traffic controller uh, was regulating the flights that would come into Houston. So I'm looking at my watch and I'm going, oh my God, like I am not gonna get a chance to do. See, uh, I just want you to know, when you're a brother and you got bed hair, it's really bad, okay? I'm just saying, you know, so I'm having this hat on to protect you optically from what you might see. No, I'm, I'm kind of jesting. Hey, thanks, Jason, for that amazing introduction. It's such an honor, man, just to be here, Kyle, Sam Houston, Huntsville, Texas, and to be with you guys. Just quick questionnaire. How many of you uh, this is your first time hearing me right now? How many of you first time? Oh, I love that. Oh my goodness. I would say that's like half the group. Awesome. So cool. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm married. I got two grown kids. Uh, I spent 10 years. I got saved in Kaffa Campus Ministry. Spent 10 years uh, directing and planting and directing campus ministries. And since that time, uh, anyone that knows me knows all you got to do is say it's a Chi Alpha event and you got me. But my wife and I, in addition to that, we travel and speak. Uh, we uh, kind of wear multiple hats, but we, we, we love the move of God. We love revival. We love Gen Z, uh, the emerging generation. Uh, we have a heart to see hearts ignited with fire for Jesus himself and his purposes in the earth and your destiny. And so that's the reason why I'm here. So we're going to dive right in. Is that okay? I've got a great friend. He traveled with me, although he got here separately. I don't know if you guys are, have been introduced to Jeremy Anderson. You guys know Jeremy Anderson? Jeremy Anderson is the West Coast Chi Alpha director. But he and his wife have kind of pulled a, a, a Gotro move, right? They moved to uh, Hawaii to really breathe fire upon the Kai Alphas there in Hawaii, plant some, see some others resurge. He and his wife, Deborah, they're amazing. He's here with me. You'll hear from him one of these nights. We haven't even got a chance to talk, but he's got to get on this mic and you can hear from him. And I'm, I'm hoping he'll jump up and join me at altar times. Eli and Mary love you guys. You guys are awesome. Seriously, just whenever I get a chance to be in the room, sitting in the front row with these two guys, I feel like Man, one of them should be preaching. I'm like beside myself. But I'm going to dive in this, okay? The best way I can start is simply to say off of a book by Charles Dickens. And you probably have heard of this book if you had to do high school literature, you know, or any of that kind of thing where you, but it was a, a tale of two cities. And it began by saying it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Back in the 90s, I had planted and directed a Chi Alpha at Chico State. Chico State at that particular time, and this is kind of a brief thumbnail backdrop of me, but it has everything to do with the springboard of what I feel I'm supposed to talk to you about. Chico State at that time had the designation of being the number one party school in America. According to Playboy magazine, I did not read the article. I was told, of course. And uh, so I, I was watching this CNN report, and they were talking about Rancho Chico Days or Pioneer Week. It was a week during spring break that at that time, back in the day when MTV would show you videos, I'm dating myself now, uh, they had a contest. And if you won the contest, we would fly you and your date, and you would be able to go to like Chico, California. Now I'm from inner city, Oakland, California. California at that point in time ended at Sacramento. Everything else was pre-Oregon as far as I was concerned. It's a culture thing. You'd have to be from the West Coast to know the humor of that. But God called me this. I'm watching this CNN report. There was a student that climbed up the telephone pole and he's yelling, Chico, Chico. Thousands of kids are taken to the street. They're throwing Molotov 
cocktails as homemade bombs. They're bouncing uh, cars. They're breaking glass. And police are just watching them, which I would later find out. There was so much money brought in during that week of riotous mayhem that kind of, from a business standpoint, as long as you weren't doing the super crazy, they would kind of close their eyes to some of the craziness going on. And there was this one student on a telephone pole, and for some reason, I'm in Stockton, California, the University of Pacific, directing the campus ministry there. I'm eating some, like, post-toasty Frosty Flakes. That's low-budget sugar Frosty Flakes, in case you didn't know it, because I was eating seven packs of Top Ramen for a dollar, because I had that Chi Alpha, like, director budget at that time. I was broke. I was ghetto. I was poor, right? And so I'm watching this, and as I'm seeing a student on the telephone pole, you got you to gotta vision this, okay? Watching this little small television, and all of a sudden, for me, I don't think the camera did it. For me, it was this massive zoom in on this student that was on the telephone pole. And it was as if, instead of waving his arms and getting everyone to yell Chico as he was drunk out of his mind, he, his fade was at a whole nother. There's levels to being faded. He's at the nth degree fade. And it seems as if he turned towards the camera, and it's like in that moment I saw sadness in his face and it was if, now this is proper English because I don't want to exaggerate this. I'm, I'm big on integrity. It was as if he said to me, would you please help me? Would you please come to Chico? He did not say that. I don't know that I had an open vision, but it was definitely a spiritual moment that God was showing something. So all of a sudden, I'm thinking, first of all, I'm like, God, I don't like Chico, right? Like, don't you have to like a place before you would go to a place? Like, I, I don't, I've been to Chico one or two times and really didn't care for it that much, to be totally honest with you. But I could not deny that when I had this, my own Macedonian slash Chico calling, I knew I had to go to this school. So I moved there. I turned over the directorship of that Kava campus ministry to a phenomenal couple, uh, Kurt Harlow and his wife, and they took it to a whole, whole, whole nother level than I ever could. I go to Chico State, and this is what I want to center in on. I'm sitting there at the Bell Memorial Union, and I'm sitting there. It's kind of the student union of the school, and I'm, I'm telling you, I, I'm not feeling this. Like, Lord, like, this is like, this is crazy. This is so foreign. Surely no, uh, you know, uh, department of personnel, right? None of them would choose me to go to Chico State. It was townish. It was countryish. I was very urban at the time. Still kind of urban, okay? But I was like hyper urban, and it just didn't seem like it was a connect. But really, what it really took was this moment. All of a sudden, as I'm sitting and I'm thinking, God, I miss you. Monday passed, Tuesday passed, Wednesday. I was going to give it to a Thursday, and I was going to pack up and move back. And I don't know what I was going to do in the meantime, but I'm just thinking, I miss God. I thought I heard God. I don't know what I'm doing here. Really didn't have great connections with people there. Just felt like I was supposed to do it. Number one party school in America. Hierarchy of devils over there were, were ridiculous. You could feel just uh, when, when people give themselves to sin over an area, and there's a lack of righteousness. In other words, the people of God aren't coming in agreement with what God is saying, but there's a group of people coming in agreement with what the enemy's assignment is. It becomes a dark place. When more people come into agreement, or maybe not even more, let me say it, when people in solidarity come in agreement with what God wants to do in a region, light is released in that region. And so that wasn't happening yet. And that was part of the reason why I'm there. And so I'm sitting on this kind of like walkway rail that you could sit on, and I'm watching it. And all of a sudden, the, the, the Bell Memorial time clock chimed. I forgot what time it was. It was probably mid-afternoon, maybe like, like, I think it was noon, in fact. And it chimed, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I'm, about to, I'm, about to, I'm going to move back home. I, I miss God. And the moment I did that, like an unusual number of college students filled the Bell Memorial Union lawns. And it looked to me like hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds. Like, I don't know, maybe there was an outdoor event and I wasn't apprised of it. But all of these students filled literally the lawn in front of me. It looked like thousands. And in that moment, it's like God kind of gave me this sense that you, and the reason why I called you here, 
is to see a movement of students that will stand in the way between these students who don't know their way and what the devil has intended for them versus what I want to release. And in other words, you and I may be the only ones standing in the way between them and a Christless grave. And so I, I'm, I'm there, and I can't even begin to describe this to you. All, all I can tell you is I read something like this in a Charles Finney book. I begin to weep. I begin to bawl uncontrollably. I mean, I'm, 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 liquid is coming out of every available duct in my head. Like, I got, I don't know if you know original Greek for what comes out of your nose, snot totos. I got snot totos coming out my nose. I mean, it's, it's ugly. And so I'm realizing I don't want to just be here and make this scene of how bad I'm bawling. I, I got to get someplace where I could have a private moment with God. So I make it over to my car. At the time, I had a, like a beater, like a janky car. I'm sitting in the car, and I'm beating the dashboard. And I'm saying, God, in this moment, Lord, like, you got to lift this thing. This thing is, I can't carry this thing. And, and I, I read about Finney because I needed some sort of context. The level of burden that hit my heart was supernatural. One minute, I'm trying to find a way out of town. The next minute, there was no way you could run me out of that town because my heart in that moment connected with what God wanted to do before he did it. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's like the ability, let me put it like this. I think it's, it's in the Gospels. I should have looked up the address. But Jesus talks about to the Pharisees, how is it that you look at a red sky and know that a storm is coming? How is it that you look at another weather pattern and on the basis of that predict it? And how is it that you can discern natural signs, but you have an inability to discern spiritual signs? You can look at that red sky and go, oh, rain is coming, but you don't have the ability in the spirit to know that rain is coming. In that moment, when God broke my heart and I saw all these students, I began to weep and bawl. And I said in that moment, I said, God, whatever you got to do in me, release your purposes on this campus. And I, I, I told the Lord, and I was very serious. I was reflecting on this on the delayed flight sitting on a tarmac. I said, God, I will die for this if necessary. I will spill my blood for this. I know maybe this is catches some of you as a bit radical, but this is what God does when he grips your heart. Lord, whatever it takes to reach college students on this campus, I'm willing to do it. Right after that, there was a guy I was introduced to. Uh, his name was Russ. Make a long story short about Russ, and this is very interesting. Russ had been a part of a junior Clansmen uh, coming up at his high school. Like, I'm like, I have student government. Like, we had a block O club. If you're part of an athlete, you got your block O, which I had a block O jacket. I went to a school Dow. <laughs> like, I guess it is school <laughs> coming up. They had this junior Klansman, and now he's part of a college level neo Nazi white supremacist. But he had a, he played baseball on the baseball team. He had a, a guy on the baseball team, Tim. Tim was a PK. His dad was a Assembly of God minister. He knew about me. I'd done a youth camp or something, so he said, I want to go to Chico State. So he, Tim, is playing baseball with Russ. Do I still have you? I didn't lose anyone. Just wave if you got me, okay? Russ is an ex-junior Klansman, neo-Nazi white supremacist, hates anyone that's not his race, anyone not of European pure descent, which, point that out to me, right? Pure European. Everybody got some mixture in them, right? And so, he hated them, and so Tim told Russ, because Russ is having some problems and issues in his life and his heart, anxiety and stuff going on, and that hatred, it has unintended consequences. You can't aim that hatred without that hatred having an ill effect on your heart, right? And so Tim says, hey, let me introduce you to my campus Calva pastor. Well, he failed to tell Russ Like, you might have thrown in there that he's a brother, he's a black man. Come on, somebody. Like, his melanin layer is a little bit darker than yours. Drop a couple Easter eggs, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Come on, now let him know what's going on. He never told him anything. So Russ is just walking out on campus. He don't know who he's walking up to. Back in the day, we had this, I had this Kalfa table. We were giving out Bibles and tracts and uh, talking to people, and different students would come there, and they would have one-on-ones in different places on the lawn. And so I'm at this table. So... <laughs> and so Tim walks up and he says, hey, Russ, 
I want to introduce you to my campus pastor, Sean. Russ, this is Sean. And I, he didn't tell me his persuasion, right? I would have liked to have known. Wouldn't make any difference. I'd have loved him the same, but at least helps to have some context. I stretch out my hand. I said, hey, Russ, good to meet you. And he looks at my hand, and he looks at me, and he kind of limpishly kind of gives me this loose fish grip like he didn't really want to take, touch my hand. And this is before COVID, okay? So you can't blame that on COVID-19, right? And Tim says, hey, Russ has some questions about the Bible and about Jesus and about Christianity. And I told him I thought that maybe you could help him. And so, again, I don't know what he is or what he, what he wanted to be. And so I said, hey, man, you know, I got an appointment right now, Russ. Hey, here's my number. Call me. I want you to come over to my house later this evening. I'm going to feed you food, bro. And let's just sit down because I want to give this thing time. I said, would you promise me you'll do it? I'll, I'll take a little time now, but I feel like I can just give you. And for whatever reasons, he took my number and I, and I had my address on it. He shows up at my house. He shows up at my house. Okay, y'all want to hear the rest of the story? Okay, you do. Okay, five minutes and we're done and we're, we're shifting, right? We're going to shift gears. He walks in my house. As he walks in, I had this little small, like, like small little tiny, tiny 700 square foot, three bedroom kind of thing, right? One and a half bathrooms. It was super tiny. It was a parsonage that the church that I was a part of would use for missionaries, but they let us stay there because we were campus missionaries. He walks in my house and Russ looks around and, and, and I, 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 I didn't know they wanted to be, I didn't know he was a racist. So I gave him, right, tuna fish sandwich because we had tuna fish. And, and that was probably a, a genius idea because my question is, do racists eat ethnic foods? Okay, we'll let that sit there for a moment. <laughs> I could have served him Mexican food. I could have served him Chinese. I don't know, right? Tuna fish sandwiches. So he's eating the tuna fish sandwich I made, chewing on it, right? And the dude sits in my room and says, I hate black people. That's when I knew I, see how my voices went up. That's when I knew I was saved. You, you ever have things in your life? Come on, Colin. You ever have things in your life that is like, in that moment, I know I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. You just reminded me how saved I am, that I got the love of Jesus in my heart. In my heart. Because if not, we would be fighting in the living room. You can come up in a black man house and say you hate black people. Why are you eating this food? Oh, I wish I could get some more help out of you, Kyle, but come on now, right? I said, Russ, why do you hate black people? And he began to say, well, it's not just black people. He, he mentioned all nationalities. I hate them all, right? I said, okay, what did they do to you? And he says, well, they take our jobs, and they're getting, you know, affirmative action money for school, and I get less money, and all this, and he's going down this whole road, right? We've heard these things before. I said, Russ, can I share something with you? When I was nine years of age, my dad was murdered by a white police officer. I went to school having a dad. I go home not having a dad because a police officer that was your race killed my father. I said, prior to Jesus, when you said you hate me, I didn't hate white people because of the race of that officer, but I did have like some issues in my heart before I gave my life to the Lord. So I probably would have reciprocated the hate. You hate on me, I'm going to hate right back on you, except Russ for one thing. Jesus Christ came in my life. He's given me a love. And this is no coincidence that you're here in this room because I have nothing but love for you and a God that can heal my heart to where after you could say that to me and after the experiences of my life, I could love you is proof of how strong the love of God is. And I said, God wants to love you and give you peace like that. I can't explain it. I, I really... What I shared wasn't that deep. He starts weeping. He's, no, 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 no. Y'all didn't get it. Here is a ex-junior Klansman, neo-Nazi white supremacist in a black man parsonage weeping. And I said, hey, I said, you need to give your life to Jesus. He said, yes. We pushed aside a tuna fish sandwich. We grab hands. He gets saved. I said, Russ, God wants you baptize you in the love and the Holy Ghost. I began to reach my hand towards him before my hand could get here. My hand is in mid-flight. He immediately is baptized in the Holy Ghost, praising God in other languages. Russ becomes the number one soul winner 
in our group, our group began to blow up in a good way because all these people were like, Russ, what are you doing? He said, hey, man, Jesus Christ changed my life. I am, this happened day five, day three, I was going to move out of town. Why? Because it took that moment of my heart being broke to realize I wasn't reading the signs. Now, we're well into this right now, but this is the best way I could describe the sign. I believe that Asbury University is a prophetic invitation. February 5th, Sam Smith, a very talented British singer, awesome voice, donned himself for the award show in doing a video in a satanic pointy head or eared costume. Now, he didn't make this statement to his defense. CBS made this statement on a tweet, we're getting ready to worship tonight. So CBS is not talking about worshiping Jesus because the context was Sam Smith had come out in this satanic outfit and they were saying that obviously the context is satanic worship. Now maybe they're jesting. I'm not saying that they're demonized, possessed folks or anything like that. But it's interesting that three days later, that's February 5th, they said, come, we're going to worship. Three days later, the power of God falls at a chapel in Wilmore, Kentucky. And it's as if God says, y'all talking about worship, let me show you what real worship looks like. As all of a sudden, students, unnamed, like, like, like there wasn't this big, huge like personality of Christian celebrity status that's calling a meeting. College students, your peers, gather together. They start repenting. They start crying out to God. Two weeks pass. Hundreds of thousands of people. The school, I get it. I, I might have made a different decision, but the, I get it from an administrative view standpoint. You got students paying money to graduate. They make a decision. Too many people are walking in the dorms, walking in cafeteria. There could be a risk going on. So they decide to move the meetings off campus. At at least a while back, I've been out of the country a little bit, I'm, I'm connected to some people. There were at least 30 different outbreaks of God from the Kenan Peninsula in Alaska to the East Coast, from the Southeast to the Pacific Northwest, and from SoCal all the way up to New England area. College students crying out to God. Even in your state, I saw pictures at Baylor where hundreds of students are out on the lawn crying out and praying. And I'm telling you, you can't just read and discern the face of the sky and know certain weather is happening if you can't in the spirit see that there is a sign that a rain of God is about to pour. And I'll correct myself, it started to pour. Now, that is incredible. The second thing I saw that jumped out was the success of the Jesus Revolution film. Last I heard, it made four times the amount anyone has thought. It, they kept extending its release and kept extending different movie theaters. Because how many of you saw the Jesus Revolution? I'm a big fan of that because that happened in my backyard. The movie takes you down to SoCal, which I would say that was the, that was the daycare of the Jesus Revolution. But the maternity ward was Hayden Ashbury in San Francisco when Ted and Liz Wise, who were Jesus freaks, but before that they were LSD druggies, and they get this vision of God, they get radically saved, and then Lonnie Frisbee comes up from having an encounter. He, they see him preaching on the street, but his, his doctrine is a little, mm, they pull him in to what's called the living room commune. They begin to disciple him, and all of a sudden something starts. So when you see the movie, you've picked up where Lonnie Frisbee comes from San Francisco area in the living room, and he goes down to L.A. Again, not trying to claim any kind of rights. I'm just saying who would have thought that San Francisco would be the womb for an international outpouring of the Holy Ghost that would culminate in hundreds of thousands of people gathering in your state at Expo 72 with Billy Graham and many other speakers? The success of the Jesus Revolution film. I said, Asbury is a prophetic invitation. The success of the Jesus Revolution movie is a prophetic declaration. When an invitation intersects a prophetic declaration, 
you got to stand up and recognize this can't be business as usual Christianity. I can't simply approach doing and what I've done for God, my approach to coming to Christian meetings, small groups, coming to church, being a part of a local body, my Ka'alpha group, my time alone with God, my time in the Word. You cannot treat that as normal because Jesus' rebuke for the Pharisees is you can read weather patterns in the natural, but you're not reading the weather patterns in the Spirit. Revivals have early weather indicators. I'm not an expert. I've read enough. I've, I've written a book on revival. It just makes me a student who threw out an attempt after reading Winky Pratt and his phenomenal book on revival. But what I have gathered is that the early weather warning detections of moves of God. There's signs in the spirit that a rain from heaven is imminent. And this is Jesus' rebuke, I keep referring to it, to the Pharisees. You can do that on, on this level, but you can't do it on this level. And let me say something to you. Sam State Chi Alpha student and visitors, a move of God is going to happen. It has already begun. And the, uh, I'm not trying to put FOMO on anyone. Maybe, Lord, help me communicate this right. My challenge, I won't use fear, is that I don't want a move to pass me by. I don't want a move to kind of have a little bit of steam, but because I did not partner with it, that I was sitting on the ledge at Bell Memorial Union, and I was getting ready to step and walk away and go back. I would have missed a move. We saw hundreds of kids get saved. We saw many people raised up and sent out in mission fields. And God did some phenomenal things. It went from the number one party school in America to 285. I don't know who's doing the measuring, but it did that in six years. Number one party school, 285. How many of you know, when we dropped on the party school list, we rose on the move of God list. You're helping a guy out that got up at 5 a.m. in the morning, still on jet lag from flying back from England. It's amazing. I have any coherent thoughts. Am I making sense, anybody? Okay. Now, I believe that we're feeling the first tremors of what will prove to be a seismic move of God that will come exactly at the precise times that moves of God already hit. I'll, I'll explain that to you, but let me tell you why I feel that, okay? Number one, as I travel around, particularly amongst young people, I am seeing a restlessness that is unprecedented. And whenever you get a restlessness, I'm seeing amongst people that claim Jesus to be Lord, I'm seeing a restlessness amongst those who deny Jesus' Lordship. I'm seeing a restlessness in your generation that nothing else satisfies. It's almost like the, the bombardment of crisis, the problems that hit you on a day-to-day -day basis, has your generation reaching for anxiety medication unprecedented and unparalleled in any generation has hit the United States prior to you. We've got situations for the first time, they tell us, we have a female, right, youth mass murderer. Whereas, as you've heard of the Nashville shooting at that uh, cornerstone, I think it was Christian school, this 28-year-old girl begins to open fire because she lost a friend, and it tipped her to where she began to open fire. She was armed to the gill and began to shoot down others. And the, and the way the enemy works is here you're grieving and hurting because you lost a friend, so you're going to make that exact thing happen for multiple families and people that have these loved ones. And I'm telling you, the enemy is... is at this point in time, running a cruel trick on the head of a generation. But her activity speaks of a restlessness. Everything from fentanyl or fentanyl or all the stuff that's going on with the, the, the trail mix experimentation of grabbing multiple medications out of your parents' like, like closet, you know, whatever that thing is called. It is all speaking of the fact that there is this unrest, this, 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 uh, 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 seismic activity of, of like restlessness all over the world. And what I'm seeing is this. It is everyone under the sound of my voice, you're experiencing, I would imagine, I would bet on it, you're experiencing some level of frustration that's unique 
to anything you've experienced. And frustration can be your friend. Now let me stop hanging here before I shoot to this other point. Frustration says you want and expect an ideal to be here, but your current reality is here. The gap between what you envision and where you're at is frustration. Frustration causes some people to do the wrong thing. Frustration calls, uh, I believe, causes some, if you know the Lord, to do the only thing you can do when there's a gap between your current reality and your, or, or let me phrase it, what is visibly available and what your biblical reality could be. Let me say that again. The real crisis today is the gap between what is visibly your reality and what is biblically available. And the frustration is there's got to be more. Has anyone said that before? There's got to be more. There's got to be more. Get your education. Get your degree. Make yourself marketable. Do what God's called you to do. But there's got to be more than just shaking a provost's hand and getting a, a graduation. Yay! And flip my little tassel. Whatever those things are called. Tassel. Thank you. Lord, help my mind right now, Jesus. How do I forget a tassel? Thank you for your rescue. There's got to be more than that. I talk to people that work in, the, in our area, that work for Google, that, that, that there's some that they've gotten their dream job, and they're telling me without telling me there's got to be more than this. I see the people in the Hollywood industry, the hip-hop, the, the, the sports people. I'm so, you hear stories. I'm surrounded. I, I've got some friendships with the people that run with some of these people, and I've gotten a chance to meet some of these people. And some of them, the miserableness, uh, it, it seems disproportionate because we think if we get the paycheck and we get the job security and you get all these things and the right person holding your arm and the right following on your socials that you think is going to be all right, but there's a frustration. And can I say this? The frustration is a gift from God. Frustration is your friend. The hope of Sam Houston State falls on the lap of frustrated Christians that says it's not enough just to have a nice little tidy quiet Christian experience if I can't see a campus flip for Jesus I'm frustrated enough where I will throw up a 24-hour prayer tent and I, I recognize that there's some specific prayers going up as it relates to a family but also the fact that hey we're gonna keep this thing going that excites me and this is an early weather warning detection when folks start to pray. Y'all with me now? Times of crisis. You know, this is the thing I want to bring out. Right at the time of the first great awakening, it was similar in this sense. Let me read off some stuff on it. They said at that particular time that the Christian faith was in virtual collapse after the American Revolution. After the United States won their freedom from the British, there was this collapse. It's almost like, well, we don't really need God. We're doing good. Things are prospering. And after this miraculous victory of farmers against trained like warriors, and not to say we didn't know how to fight, most citizens, they say, quote, became large, lethargic about their faith, stopped going to church. Many people gave their children over to universities that were filled with immorality, atheism, they literally abandoned themselves at that time, the French Revolution, godless philosophies. President of Yale, Timothy Dwight, explained how these philosophies had corrupted the campuses. Here's what he said, quote, everybody hear this? He says, the dregs, now you got to understand this is old school kind of verbiage here. The dregs of infidelity were vomited upon us and a whole mass of pollution was emptied upon this country. Chief Justice John Marshall, at that time a chief justice, he was a devout believer, he summed up how bad things had gotten in the 17, late 1700s, 1790s. He said, the church in America was too far gone to ever be revived. Let me stop. That is the struggle, is that you're so overwhelmed by how bad things get, you can't see what it would look like when God releases a God move. Few people, let, let me just say this, few people on the front end see revival. I'm coming to you because I believe you are that edge that are meant to see it. And David McKenna, InterVarsity Press author, wrote The Coming Great Awakening. And honestly, interestingly, is a retired pastor emeritus of Asbury Theological Seminary, connection to Asbury. He wrote this and he said, the coming great awakening based on his studies, he believes in that book will start in a college dorm room. 
not believe him. That's why I'm talking to you like this. Looking all crazy with my beanie and had, like eye croutons in my eyes. You know, it's like whatever you call them little things in your eyes. When you don't get, anyway, he declares that. And then they said at that point in time, Christians were so unpopular, they had to meet in secret. They had to keep their minutes in cold. Like they took notes at their meeting, they had to put it in cold for fear that they would be attacked. That's a whole other level. They were burning down buildings. They were forcing the resignation of college presidents based on if they were moral or not. Talking about cancel culture, hello, this was going on in the late 1700s. But J. Edwin Orr, a revivalist, historian, and a doctor said this. He said, what happened next was the problem was too big for human ingenuity or human energy. And he says, the demonic forces, along with carnal collaborations, forced the church into a corner. And he says, then God sent the gift. You know what he said the gift was? Desperate prayer. Desperate prayer. The thing that turned the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and some people designate revivals, but I'd say the third great awakening. There was a businessman prayer revival, but I believe the third great awakening will be tipped in the same way they all have. It's one thing to desire a move of God. It's one thing to desire more of Jesus. It's one thing to desire to have a blessed life. It's one thing to desire to have more Bible knowledge. But let me just submit something to you. It, your desire must pass the threshold into desperation or the heavens to a certain extent remain brass. It's only when you reach the tipping point of a desire for something to where it's desperate, right? It's like I'm in a car beating it, weeping over a campus, and I get to the point where, and this was like not my terminology, God, I'll die that these students would get saved. Somehow it wasn't just a desire to have a nice little Kyle for campus group, which I would think that's a good desire. It was a desperation that, God, you would rock a campus. Lord, you would break open the heavens. Something would pour on a generation that would shift the landscape, the moral turpitude, and the narrative over a generation. Am I, am I like a bit much for y'all right now? Am I just like coming to, I know hearing me preach is like drinking out of fire hydrant. I recognize it. Y'all still with me? Come on, come on, touch the person next to you. Say, get with him. Come on, just touch somebody. Say, get with him. Get with him a little bit. Get with him. The one weapon left is what crisis is about you discovering. The one weapon left to the believers of that day was desperate prayer. And it takes crisis for you to find the one weapon that will work. It's not just, yeah, okay, how do I say it? Say it right, Sean. It's not just getting on social media and talking about how bad evil is today. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I believe that we need to stand up for truth. I see some Christians, the extent of what they're contributing to the kingdom is they cry out against evil. Do that. But all the more, you need to cry out for an outpouring of the Holy Ghost that will be an answer to the evil. I'm not just sitting here to call out evil. I want to call down heaven that can shift the evil. Ooh, come on, sis. Man. Come on. It's not enough to cry out against the evil if you're not willing to cry out for the rain that shifts the evil. Atacama Desert. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to take you to a passage, and we're going to be, like, gloriously done. Y'all ready? Atacama Desert, scientists believe, may be the driest place on the planet. The Atacama Desert is in northern Chile. It runs six to 700 miles along, ironically, the Pacific Ocean. Yet it receives no blessing of rain, and somehow, I don't know, maybe because it's salt water or whatever, the water can't really nourish crops or anything. Uh, it, is, it is alongside literally the world's largest body of water, but it's the driest place on planet Earth. They say in most years, this enormous wasteland, hear me, Kafa, this enormous wasteland enjoys scarcely more than a few drops. It gets 0.2 inches per year. The terrain, you would imagine, mostly rocky, dried salt lakes, ancient lava flows. It's so barren and inhospitable that NASA does like trial runs, I don't know else to call it, to test equipment before they would try to send it to Mars. Okay, that should give you an idea. This place is crazy dry. Come on, somebody say crazy dry. 
Yet several years back, something extraordinary occurred. In a mere handful of hours, seven years worth of rain hit the Atacama Desert. Seven years worth of rain in a handful of hours, and it received the equivalent, scientists tell us, you could Google me on this, better Google me, all right? That it received the equivalent of seven years worth of rain. But the true miracle was actually this. It got rain, but practically overnight, this barren wasteland began to grow flowers and begin to bloom. And the most arid, desolate place on earth exploded with life after years, decades of barrenness. The desert bloomed. People came from all over. It became a tourist attraction to see what was the driest place on earth. Now, now stop. Here's where I'm going with this. If you would have judged the Atacama Desert prior to the rain, you would go, it's dry, it's dead. I mean, there may be a couple lizards there, and they, they, they underneath a fan, okay? I mean, it's, it's hot, it's dry. And you would have judged the land barren. But it isn't barren because there's something underneath the ground that didn't blossom till the rain came. They didn't come and plant seeds. Seeds were already in the ground. You can't judge the greater Houston area or Sam Houston State or the state of Texas or the United States of America. You can't judge it right now by how dry it is. You can only judge it once a rain comes because the rain exposes what's been planted in the ground. You can't point at somebody and go, ah, they don't really have a lot going for them. Hey, people say that about me. I got a D plus in high school speech. Then the rain of God came. Right? And I'm certainly not just want to use me as an example because it still baffles me that folks would fly me and my wife halfway across the country to speak to them with the very thing I got a D plus in high school speech. But you would have judged me as the inventor of ebonics. No, no. You would have judged me as a person who was highly nervous. I was. Inarticulate. I was. But then the rain came. Come on, somebody say the rain. You can't judge the person next to you without a rain. You can't judge your campus without a rain. People say America's to the Timothy. I told you about the president of Yale. He says it's too far gone. No, you can't say that without a rain. Now, if the rain comes and you reject the rain and nothing comes up, different story. But you can't judge a geography until after the rain. Because when the rain comes, something shifts. Now, y'all help me. Let me throw out two things. How do I know if I got spiritual dryness? Three quick things, one passage. Y'all still with me? Three quick things. How do I know if I'm spiritually dry? Number one, your faith is no longer contagious. You have an Atacama Desert Syndrome if your faith is no longer contagious. If you're a baby Christian, you go, well, I'm just young. No, no, no. That might be your most contagious time. Hopefully not, right? They say, the statistics say the majority of people who lead people to the Lord, they will do so in the first year they're saved. I deliberately said, God, I don't want that. I want to, I want to try to beat my last year mark. I'm still trying to beat my last year. And I'm, I'm like some decades into this. I don't know how successful I am, but I just, just one more soul. Just one more soul, right? When, when your faith is no longer contagious, because when you're spiritually dry, it affects your relationship with those who don't know Jesus because you're not bubbling over anymore. It's just proof you're dry. You need the reign of God in your life. If you're faithful, okay, move on, Sean, move on. Number two, second symptom of spiritual dryness is God feels distant. Now, honest disclosure, full disclosure, there are time to times when I feel like, oh, God, there's something running interference with you and I, God. I, I need to get on my face and see what's maybe something's wrong in my heart. Did I grieve you, Holy Spirit? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you consistently, over a period of time, you find where God feels distant. Because what happens is, is that you don't realize life can cause a gradual distancing from God if you're not intentional of connecting to his heart. My thing is, say, my prayer is, God, help me to connect to your heart. Help me to capture your heart, God. Help me to capture your heart and help me to communicate that heart to others. And this is this thing. God feels distant. Third and final thing. When you're, well, actually, there's probably many symptoms, but I chose three I'm going to give you. Number three, your spiritual life is in a rut. 
Your relationship with God gets stale. You lack the excitement that you once had. Your, your, your devotional life, your connection to God has been reduced to a rote exercise. It's occasional or it ceases to exist at all. It's speaking to the fact of, hear me, you need the reign of God. Don't stay there. That God, right now, tonight, right? And I almost feel like I can give an altar call right now, but I, I have to give you this one last scripture. But I feel like there's some of you that you're hearing about the reign of God but rather than thinking of how the rain can impact your campus, you're in a place where, like, I feel dry. And I feel like right now, tonight, God is about to, how, how do I say this? In California, they have, and, and Jeremy would, would know this, in San Diego, I'm sure he's taking his beautiful kids there. They got SeaWorld. And SeaWorld, they used to have Shamu. I don't know, Shamu, just like whatever, Great White or whatever that thing is, you just keep calling Shamu. It's like, this Shamu number 23 right now. But when you walk in to see Shamu do his tricks or whatever, there's a section there and it says, warning, uh, this is the splash zone, you will get wet. So that's known. If you're going to sit there, and, and different people are different. Like when my kids are young, I sit there with them. I don't really want to get wet right now. So I'm trying to sit a little bit away out of the splash zone, right? I don't understand a believer that doesn't want to get wet. I don't understand someone that would distance themselves from being in the splash zone of an altar when God's pouring out his spirit and the, and the goal is to get wet. The goal is to be saturated by God and to keep a distance. I don't understand a Christianity like that. I, 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 again, I'm not trying to like look down my nose at anybody, but I think because of my radical conversion and the way God showed himself to me, but then I stop and think, no, because I've seen people that don't have my testimony. I've seen people that were raised in church. I think what it really comes down to is a thirst for the more of God. Now, final scripture. Y'all are so good. 1 Kings 18.42. Elijah has seen a nation go the way of Baal worship. You're talking about a crisis. There was cancel culture to the point where the prophets had to hide in caves. Those who were mouthpieces of God had to hide for their lives because a wicked king Ahab and a wicked queen Jezebel, you probably heard of that name, right? They're hunting them down. Elijah is the one lone, at least public figure, stand for God. We understand there were many others that did not bow their knee to Baal. But all of a sudden, Elijah from Tishbe, don't even know where Tishbe is. God pulled this dude out of no place, sets him on the scene, he calls forth a challenge. And he says, you 850 false prophet to this fertility, immoral God, Baal. And Astaroth was kind of a female totem pole God, similar. They could come in agreement over the immorality and the demonic witchcraft sway of a generation that would seduce them from pure worship. He says, your God, Baal, is the God of the elements and his specialty is fire. Let's go up on Mount Carmel. Used to be a very godly mountain, but now it is a false sacrifice mountain because the devil is coming to take territory. And if you don't fight, he'll take territory. That territory could be a campus. That territory could be your heart. All of a sudden, Elijah said, okay, y'all go first. Y'all hear 50 prophets. Y'all do what you do. Call on your God. He's a God of fire, particularly sun. We're coming to your home court, and we're going to see whose God is going to Answer by fire. So they do their thing all day. I love one church lady said, perhaps your God is using the restroom. <laughs> like, he is talking trash at this point, right? I'm from urban areas, so I understand a little bit. We play hoop, play dominoes, you'll talk trash. He's talking trash. And then all of a sudden, the experiment with calling on a false God turns like very savage as they begin to cut themselves because it's the unintended consequence of calling on a false god, the wrong god, is number one, there's no answer, and number two, it begins to cause self-harm. In some way, shape, or form, you begin to hurt, you begin to diminish. And then all of a sudden, Elijah had enough, and he, call, he first of all, he wets the sacrifice in a, by the way, three and a half year drought. Somebody say dry. Three and a half years it hadn't rained. It is dry. Somehow he gets water, saturates it, as if to say, we're gonna prove to you that there's no way Right, somebody just flipped a couple rocks and started a little big lighter fire. Come on. How many of you ever tried to, to light wet logs, you know, to, for, in a fireplace? Come on, somebody. How many of you ever tried to do a barbecue, barbecue with wet briquettes, right? Difficult. 
He saturated not once, not twice, three times as if to say, no one's going to be able to send fire on this but God. And all of a sudden, eastern, western guy, sky parts, laser beam of glory comes down, fire hits it, licks up all the water. That's what it says in one translation. Lights the sacrifice on fire, and all of a sudden, all the false prophets are rounded up, and they like, not good for these dudes, right? Now, here's where we join in. It says in 1 Kings 18.42, if I get someone to come to the keys, it says, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up on the top of Mount Carmel. He bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. So he went up and looked, and he says, there's nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So we'll stop. I just want to concentrate on this. If I look this way, I said, everything I said to get to this right here. Fire fell, but that's not what they needed. How many of you understand? I mean, it is what they needed, but it isn't what they wanted. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Sometimes God won't give you what you want. He'll give you what you need. What they needed and what they wanted was water. They wanted rain. It had rain three and a half years. But before the rain came, there was a sign that something is shifting. The sign before the rain is fire fell. When the fire fell, I want you to see the two different responses. King Ahab and Elijah. Ahab went to eat and drink. Elijah got in the birthing position where he got on Mount Carmel, put his head between his legs, and he's crying out for rain. And I think after you hear about Asbury, after you hear about the popularity of the Jesus Revolution, I'm seeing hunger. I'm seeing students. I was just telling the guy speaking in the truck, said what God's doing. I'm, I'm like, in two weeks, we, we saw what was going on at, at, at Asbury. Northern California is tough. It's tough. Two weeks before a night where we just said, we want to gather people together, cry out for the reign of God. We want to ask God, hungry for the more, come. We're going to give an altar call. We're going to pray for the sick. We're going to pray you through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to cast out devils. We're going to go all out. But we're, it's, it's a Jesus night. It's a Jesus night. We didn't advertise anybody speaking, anybody banned. It's just that. Two weeks before it's going to happen. Northern California, 60 people showing up would be a good night in the Bay Area. That really would. I'd have been, I'd have wanted more, but I'd be like, okay, it's a good place to build because we're going to, we're doing these things monthly. Two weeks. So say today, I just, I, not major advertisement, I just put on Instagram, hey, we're going to have this night. Come on out. Two weeks from that night is the night. It happened to fall on St. Patrick's Day. You know how many people showed up in the Bay Area on a Friday night, St. Patrick's Day? 400 people. Now, Texas, you can't really appreciate that because y'all got mega churches on every corner. The biggest Baptist buildings I've ever seen in my life were in the state of Texas. Y'all got mega, you could throw a rock and hit a mega church, right? I don't know, I know this is being taped. I don't know from San Francisco, you, in San Jose, yes. But just north of San Jose, all the way up through the Bay Area, I don't know of a church over a thousand, right? Like significantly strong. Sacramento, okay. San Jose, okay. But that in between, I don't know of any, any churches. 400 people showing up on two weeks notice. You know how long we stayed? We started at 7. You know what time we ended? 11.45, because we had to kick folks out because I knew the worship team, they had families, people waiting to clean up. The young people your age were the ones that, yeah, the meeting's over, but it isn't over. And they were worshiping, crying out to God. People were repenting. It was glorious. I mean, if I think about it too much, I'll start to weep. And I think when fire's falling, King Ahab goes back to eat and drink. Elijah goes and prays. Some people will say, and I get it, I need to throw this out there because there'll be some people, well, Sean, Elijah did tell Ahab to go eat and drink. But I think it was a test because Elisha's mentor, Elijah, says, hey, you stay here. I'm going to go over here. And Elijah, who would be this guy now, says, no, I'm going with you. You're not going to leave me back here. I think there are times, like if I were to say right now, okay, Y'all just be normal. Like, I remember coaching my son's basketball team, and it was at a point we had coached them, we had played for a while, we were in there, and the guys just didn't show up. So I was bad. They're, they're, at this point, they're like 7th, 8th grade, so a little bit older. I said, okay, fellas, 
y'all got here this far. You could feel good that you made it this far in the tournament. We could throw our jerseys out on the court, which it looks like we're doing and think we're going to win, but we're not. We can go out here and just say, hey, we had a good season. We just didn't show up. And a team not as good as you guys are going to beat you tonight. Go ahead and just continually play selfish and go ahead and not play defense and let them have layups as a basketball team and do it. But how many of you know, I wasn't suggesting that they do it. It's kind of a bit of reverse psychology. It's really a test of your heart. Where are you at? So here's this guy when he should have said, no, Elijah, I'm not going to go back to the Netflix bins and the DoorDash takeout. I'm going to hit the mountain where fire fall. We're going to crowd. We're going to turn it. This joker goes back to business as usual. He went back to feeding his flesh. He went back to carnal activity. It's, it's as if the fire falling had no impact on him. But Elijah says it's not over. It's good we saw fire, but it isn't, it isn't the total package till we get the rain. We need to have birthing rooms all across this state of folks crying out for student movements like John Armott and the student volunteer. We need some folks that will get in a birthing position and say, God, no, don't pass another generation. Lord, show your glory. Make your name famous on the lips of a generation. And this dude saw something nobody else saw. He sent his servant. He said, go look for rain. I could just see the servant. All right, three minutes, we done. Like the dude's running over and he looks over in a mountain. Nah, nah, nothing. He said, go again. Nah. By the time you're the sixth time, you know that little teenage kid, they don't want to do what they got to do. How do you keep anticipating and looking for something and yet it doesn't seem to be making headway. It's called obedience. It's called faith. I think there are people that have been looking for a move of God for a long time. You guys are the beneficiaries, and maybe some of you have, even though you're young. Maybe you've been looking. I think there's some people that we've been looking, and all of a sudden he goes back the seventh time and praise God that there was a man of God that just kept going back and pray. I'm going to pray until. I'm not giving up. This isn't just a show. This isn't just, I'm going to do it. And, oh, well, I guess it's not going to happen. No, there's too much on the line. Seventh time, he goes back. He sees the cloud the size of a man's hand. But that cloud would eventually come in and be a storm that would, the rain of God would fall. And it was amazing what happened. You have to recognize, you have to recognize something's going on. Bow your heads. Jesus. Lord, I just thank you, God, all across this place. There are hungry students that say, Jesus, I want more of you. Lord, I want to see what you've ordained for me to see. I'm convinced that there are far-off moves, and then there are moves that are so close that you see the early weather warning detection sign looking like, the cloud the size of a man's hand. But in that thing at a distance that looked just about the size of a man's hand, that was going to be all the water it took to break a three-and-a-half-year drought. And it's because once the fire fell, one guy went back and couch-surfed, eating pizza, Netflix binging, going back and getting the same latte at the same coffee shop, and it didn't impact his walk at all. But another one said the rain is a excuse me, the fire falling on that mountain is a sign that rain is coming to this nation. And Lord, you're giving us signs. Fire has fallen all over this place on colleges. Many, 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 many colleges that have been impacted. And that fire is a sign that we're to lock in for the rain. First of all, heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here tonight, you're in the balcony, you're on the lower level. You were born in sin, but you weren't born for sin. And that is a big difference. You were born in sin, meaning, I mean, there's, I can get theological on you, but the most simple way is any person that's a parent, you didn't have to teach little Johnny to hit his sister to get his toy back. That selfishness came, and it's, it's up to you as a parent to help parent them out of that selfishness because babies aren't born as we would say, these perfect 
children. It's like it's innate in kids to want what they want when they want it. Anyone that has a newborn, you know what I'm talking about. They will keep you up all night. They will fuss. They will slap you in the face with the offhand because they want attention. They want food. They want whatever. You don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. It's inbred. Ever since the fall of humanity in the garden, that there is this built-in DNA that we've inherited from our physical father, great, 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 etc., Adam, and great, 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 etc., grandmother Eve. And so God sent the last Adam, Jesus, to cause there to be a new DNA available that all of a sudden you could become new in Christ. That the selfishness, the the the, the pride, the heartache, the 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 in unintended effect of what sin does to your life and my life. And yes, there is a heaven. Yes, there is a hell. People say, well, I don't know if I, I believe in that. Isn't it funny how many demon movies? I'm watching one of my shows, all of a sudden, The Pope's Exorcist, some sort of new movie out. It's funny consistently how many demon in hell movies come out. There, there, there is a portion of folks that believe in something beyond what you can see. The five physical senses and what you feel can be proven through empirical evidence. I'm telling you, the spirit realm is real. Devil is real. When you have a 28-year-old girl that would go and open on a grade school, it, it was like kindergarten through 12th grade, but many of the majority of the fatalities were young little kids. You, you can't tell me that's a bad chromosome. You can't tell me a girl had a bad day. You can't tell me she was off her meds. That's evil. And I'm telling you, this is in the world today. And there's only one answer for the evil that's not just in the world, it's found in hearts. And that one answer is the name Jesus. The Bible says there's only one name given unto man where they may call upon and be saved. There's one name that's a name above every name. There's one name that will stop the devil and evil dead in his tracks. There's one name that the devil fears. It's not some psychic, Hollywood psychic Tyler or Long Island psychic, whatever that lady's name is. Those names don't stop the devil in his track. In fact, he feels he already got them. There's one name. I remember at night being gripped and feeling like something's grabbing me in the middle of the night and having these nightmares and torments and, and other things that went on. And I later found out it's not as rare. Of, uh, if, you'd be amazed how many people, if I asked you to raise hand, how many in the middle of the night felt a hand grab them or something move or something weird. But I tell you what, I call on the name of Jesus and that nonsense stops because I recognize the one that has authority. Only in Christianity at the other end of your confession comes a new life. But what will it cost you? Everything. You got to repent. You cannot have his life and hashtag your best life now. He will give you your best life, but it's his life because you laid your life down. That's how this works. It's called repentance. It's a great word. Repent is an awesome word. Metanoia. The ability to get beyond yourself. It is the greatest need of all of us, whether we recognize it or not. Jesus, and I haven't even talked about how good heaven is. Heaven is awesome, right? We could go on a whole message on that. But let me tell you what, heaven isn't just when you die. Jesus gives you a taste of heaven to go to heaven on, just like the devil wants to give you hell to go to hell on. It really is a no-brainer. If you're here right now, listen to me, young person. You've not given your life to Christ. You've not surrendered to Jesus. You don't know if you're to die where you'd go. Here is the thing. If the devil could, he'd hold your hand down. He'd hold your life back. He'd keep you right where he's at because he loses ground when you come to Jesus. But guess what? He can't hold your life back. He can't hold your hand down, not without your permission. The moment a person is the thing that as strong as the devil thinks he is, he has no weaponry against the will of a person that says, as I began this, I'm desperate, I'm frustrated, I want more. And the moment you do it, Satan drops down all of his weapons and now tries to fight you on the other side of you coming to Jesus because he recognizes when you make that choice, he's got nothing to backtrack on that decision. And that's what you're being called to do. If you're here right now, say, Sean, I want you to pray with me. I need to give my life to Christ. I need to come back to the Lord. Or, man, I've been like that prodigal and I've walked away from God. I was raised in a Christian home, but I've fallen away. Stuff I'm doing now, I know God's not blessing. I need to get right with God. If that's you, 
You want this prayer. This is a miracle prayer on a miracle night. If you're saying, Sean, I need to surrender my life to Christ. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to turn over the steering wheel of my heart and for that matter, my life to Jesus. If that's you, wherever you're at right now, do not hesitate. Hesitation plays into the hands of the enemy. It's that prompt. Jump on it. No devil. Not today, Satan. My wife's got a t-shirt. Said, Not today, Satan. She even made a little picture frame on our front door. Not today, Satan. This is what you need to say. If you're here right now, say, Sean, pray with me. I'm ready. I want this miracle. I want to give my life to Christ. If that's you, wherever you're at right now, slip your hand up right now. Slip it up wherever you're at. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, man, yes. I I'm just going to throw out there. I, there's at least 25 to 30 of you, your hands up right now. You are not alone. Anyone else? You're, how do you know if God's dealing with your heart starts beating fast? I have a theory on that. The Bible says Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Context and revelation is the church, but I believe God knocks on the heart of unbelievers as well. Your heart beating fast is God's knocking on the door of your heart saying, would you let me in? Would you let me? Anybody else that would say, I want to include me in this prayer too. Get your hand up if anyone else. All right. I want all those that are lifting your hand, hand up, stand up. Just stand up right where you're at. You're not alone. Again, it's at least 25 of you. Just stand up. Like, shoot up. Like, like this is crazy, right? <laughs> I got to the place in our Kyle that students would run to the altar before this appeal was given, before this invitation was given, people would just come to the altar and it was like, awesome, right? I mean, what it showed me is no matter how eloquent or ineloquent, if that's the right word, I am, it doesn't matter when the Holy Spirit, and this is who you're responding to. You're not responding to me. The Holy Spirit is tapping you, and you're saying, yes, I want you from the balcony all the way to the front area. If you're standing, would you come meet me down here? Don't sit back down. Please step right out of your seat. Come right down here. I want to pray and be a part of this miracle with you. Come on, you you guys up here. Come on down. We got some stairs right over here. We got people coming from the balcony. Come on. I love you guys. These guys say, I'm coming to this. Come on, bro. You too, man. Come on. You standing. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Yes. Come on now. Y'all y'all did a Tiger Wood golf clap. Come on. Like like let's let them know and Jesus know. Oh, I love it. Being hugged up. Different people respond to Jesus love different ways. So there isn't outside of obviously opening your heart, which you guys have done. Some people, it's like a moment where they begin to feel like this emotional connection and the love of God. They begin to weep. I'm not pointing you out. I, I see some wet eyes. Others, it's like in that moment, you're going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is a bit of that. It's exciting, right? Like right when you're hearing a chink, chink, chink on the roller coaster ride, but you know, right, this is going to be the ride of your life. And some of you in that moment, it's just a still place. All of a 